Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 30. The themes of Psalm 30 will be familiar to us. It's a happy, celebratory psalm. And there's nothing in it that's particularly complicated. But what's really interesting about Psalm 30 is the backstory. And so we're going to spend the first part of tonight looking at the backstory. And then the second part of the evening, we'll actually get to the psalm. In the uh, prescript to Psalm 30, we're told that it is a psalm for the dedication of the house. Now, that Hebrew word, house, can equally be translated temple. So this is a psalm that is a song for the dedication of the temple. By the way, since I mentioned it is a song, this is the first of the psalms that we're particularly told that it is a song, a shir is the Hebrew word. And in fact, this is the only place in the first book of the psalms where we see this designation, this particular word, that it is a song. And it's for the dedication of the temple. So that's a clue that lets us go back and figure out where David got the attitude that he expresses in this psalm. So we're told that it is a song for the dedication of the house or the dedication of the temple, and then we're told that it is a song of David. In order to know the backstory, we're going to go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and we're going to look at the whole chapter because it is just an absolutely fascinating moment in the history of Israel, in the history of David, and in David's interaction with God. And if you would, Tom, if you would look up 2 Samuel 24, I'm going to have you read the very first verse, because even the beginning of this story tells us some very important things about God, his character, and his actions, the way that he brings about his will. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, the first two words that we see is, then Satan. So what did Satan do? Well, Satan stood up against Israel. And how did he stand up against Israel? He moved David. He inspired David to number Israel. Okay, if you were only reading the First Chronicles version of this story, which runs pretty much identical to what we read in Second Samuel, with one very notable exception, which Tom is now going to read for us. This is Second Samuel 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. The exact same temptation 
is accredited to God in Samuel's telling of it and accredited to Satan in the chronicler's telling of it. Well, what does that tell us? Does it mean that there's a contradiction in the Bible? Did the writers of the Bible not know if it was God who did it or Satan who did it? We who know the sovereignty of God understand what I said just this past Sunday, that the devil is God's devil. Now, this past Sunday, I gave credit to Elder Ward for that because that was the first person who said it that I had ever heard it. Turns out that that quote goes back to Martin Luther, that Martin Luther was the first to say that the devil is God's devil. And we see that demonstrated here. Here is God whose anger is stirred against Israel. So he wants to curse Israel. In order to curse Israel, he inspires David to go count the men of Israel and Judah. That apparently is a grievous sin against God because God has been showing David time and time again that he is to rest in him. Trust in him. Don't trust in your horses or your chariots or your strength, your military power. That's not where your strength lies. Your strength lies in God and him alone. And so David decides to find out what his military strength is. So God inspires David to go take a census of all the fighting men in Israel and Judah, but the way that he stirs up the temptation within David to actually go do that counting is that he uses Satan to accomplish it. It's very much like what we read in the beginning of the book of Job. It isn't God who brings about the difficulties for Job. It is Satan who does it, but he does it by the permission of God. So God is sovereign over absolutely everything. Even the trials, even the temptations, even the difficulties of life, even those moments when you say, wow, everything just went really bad. Satan's beating me up right now. It's good to know that that could not happen without the say-so of God. He is still on his throne and will, as we're going to see in the coming weeks in Revelation, he is going to cast Satan ultimately into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, which means that God can do that at any time or any point that he chooses. The minute that Satan went into the garden and tempted Eve and started with, did God really say God was aware of that moment? And he could have gotten rid of Satan right then. Okay, lake of fire for you right now. But Satan serves a function, serves a purpose in the larger scope, in the larger economy of what God is doing in the way he rules this world, this universe, and his people. So I'm really fascinated, before we even get into the story, that we get this little insight into the workings of God where he in order to punish the people of Israel, stirs up David to take account so that he can then punish Israel in response to what David has done, but he utilizes Satan in order to make it happen. This is a God who has intricate plans. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba, even to Dan, and bring me word so that I may know their number. Now, apparently, Joab knows this is a bad idea. Joab has more insight at this point than David does. Because in verse 3, Joab said, 
May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek to do this thing? Why should he be the cause of guilt to Israel? So Joab realizes, if you do that, that's going to make Israel guilty. So don't do that. David, like any other prideful human, once he has said, I'm the king, go do it, doesn't back down. Verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem And Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David, and all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So he did it because the king said to, but Joab knew enough to know this is not a good idea. This is obviously some kind of sin against God, and it's going to bring God's ire against Israel. Verse 7, and God was displeased with this thing. The first thing we read was, first thing Tom read was, God was looking for an occasion to stir up his anger against Israel. And then we read here, and God was displeased with this thing. So he struck Israel. He ended up doing exactly what he determined to do in the first place, but he brought about the human events that would precipitate him actually pouring out his anger on Israel. Can you imagine a God that sovereign? Does a God that sovereign fit with your theology? A God who can decide, I'm going to create a cause because I'm angry at Israel. And then once the cause occurs... He says, that's it. Now I'm angry at you. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go and speak to David, saying, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Again, really interesting that God gives David the choice of three. I'm going to punish you, but I can punish you three different ways. And since you're the one who sinned against me by counting the people, I'm going to let you choose which punishment Israel has to undergo. Here are your three choices. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, Take for yourselves either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your enemies while the sword of your enemies overtakes you or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer I shall give to him who sent me. Those are three really bad choices. First three years of famine. Okay, there's going to be a lot of death. People are going to starve to death. It's going to be a long, agonizing death and not enough food. And, of course, that's going to make people question your leadership, your planning as the king. So your second choice is 
I just turn you over to your enemies. And they're just going to have at you, and I'm not going to protect you. And your enemies are going to overtake you. Or your third choice is, I bring pestilence, sickness in the land. And I even send a destroying angel throughout all the territory of Israel for as long as I want. Now, given those three choices, David's answer is really, really interesting, really, really theologically informative. Because he chooses the one where he falls into the hands of God rather than to fall into the hands of men, which is really insightful. Because human beings, for as long as they've been on the planet, we know, are wicked and sinful and depraved. So David's not going to find mercy at the hands of men. Once his enemies have the ability to overtake him, they're not likely to suddenly show him mercy. So here's what David says. Verse 13, and David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. I think we could all say that. Given the choice, even if God is angry at us, I'd rather be in the hand of my Father who is merciful and ever-loving. I would rather be instructed and corrected by him than for him to turn me over to human beings because human beings are merciless and cruel and egocentric and sinful and depraved, which is exactly why the politics of the world at this very moment have gone so badly haywire, because whether we're talking about individual humans or whether we're talking about nations here on planet Earth, human beings are no good at self-governance. They're not able to come up with just and righteous rules, laws, and behaviors because they will naturally legislate in their own favor because of their own pride, because of their own ego. And David knows that. People back then were the same as people are today. And so David says, don't turn me over to my enemies. I'd rather fall into the hand of God. And he knows full well that that means pestilence, sickness throughout the land, plague throughout the land, and the destroying angel going through Israel and killing at will. And David said, I'd rather have that because I know it's God who's doing it. One time at men's group, and help me out here, Steve, because I believe this story came from you. One night at men's group, we were told that uh, John Calvin, who suffered from terrible headaches, at one point toward his death, one of his friends inquired of him how he was doing, and he said, God is crushing me. But I take consolation in the knowledge that it is God who is crushing me. Same thing David's saying here. If the punishment is going to come, I'd rather it be directly from God because I know his character. I know his nature. I know that he is ever loving. I know that he is a God who will ultimately be gracious and restore us. I don't want to be in the hands of sinful men. So David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercies are very great. 
but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell because David counted them and figured that was his army and that was his strength. David counted them to show ownership. What have we been saying on Sunday mornings? If you take the mark, that shows ownership. It's the same thing here. David was counting because these were his people, his army, that he was going to rule over, and God went in and just started killing them. There, how about I decimate your army for you? Now who are you going to trust? Does that mean that only men die? No women? Apparently so, yeah, because he was counting men that were ready for battle. Don't gloat. <laughs> it's just interesting because if it was famine, I mean, women... Famine would, yeah. Would. yeah. But what we know for sure is that God was decimating David's army. And yeah, I would expect if they fell into, their hand, into the hands of their enemies, yeah. that would also affect women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he was sorry over the calamity, and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor, of Ornan the Jebusite. Okay, a threshing floor. Just a place where after harvesting your grain, you separate the wheat from the chaff. It's just a threshing floor. And Ornan is just in the midst of threshing and harvesting and getting his grain. And that very place, the threshing floor of Ornan, becomes the very place where the temple of God is built. Here's how that happened. David lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. And then David and the elders covered with sackcloth fell on their faces. And David said to God, is it not I who commanded the count of the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, please let thy hand be against me and my father's household and not against thy people that they should be plagued. And then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad, the seer, to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of God, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Then Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. Yeah, scary angel, sword drawn, wiping people out. They ran and hid. And Ornan was just doing his everyday thing. He's just threshing wheat. He's just out there doing his job. And suddenly he's put right in the middle of all this. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor, and he prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, give me the sight of this threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to Yahweh, for the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from the people. 
And Ornan said to David, now you got a figure at the moment. He's got the king standing in front of him. And he's just seen an angel with a sword drawn. David brings up, I want to buy this land from you. He's like, take it. Just take whatever you got to do. Just do it. Ornan said to David, take it for yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in your sight. And then he goes on beyond that because he's busy threshing. So he's got oxen and the oxen are in a yoke. He offers it all to him. See, I will give you the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give it to you all. But King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. And then this really wonderful theological statement, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering that costs me nothing. It's the essence of what sacrifice is. It's the essence of what giving to God is. If you're giving God something that costs you nothing, well, then you're not giving to God. You're not sacrificing to God. And even David knows that. So I'm going to pay you the full price because I cannot give to God something that didn't take some sacrifice from me. I'm the guilty party here. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. So from heaven... Apparently, fire came down, took the offering from him, demonstrating to David that God actually heard him and responded favorably and took the offering that David laid before him. Verse 27, and the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifice there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were in the high place at Gibeon at the time. But David could not go there to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. So then David said, this, this piece of land, this threshing floor, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. And David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors and the gates and for the clamps and more bronze than could be weighed and timbers of cedar logs beyond number. For the Sidonians and the Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. And David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it, so David made ample preparation before his death. 
Now turn to 2 Chronicles for just a moment. We're going to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 3. 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Do you recognize the name Mount Moriah? It's the very place where Abraham went to sacrifice his son. So this is a really significant location there around Jerusalem. So Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. So now we know the location of the temple that was built. We know the background of why it was built there on Mount Moriah. We know why it was on the threshing floor of Ornan. And we know the circumstances that David went through and the pestilence brought by God. And 70,000 men lost their lives. And David knew he was responsible and even said to God, what have they done? I'm the one that's guilty here. That was the inspiration for Psalm 30, which is a celebratory psalm that was then used at the dedication of the temple that he knew Solomon was going to build, which is why he made all the preparations for Solomon to build it. This is a song of dedication. This is a song of celebration. And this is a song of looking back on what God has taken his people through and particularly what he has taken David through. And even as bad as it was, even as David was going through the difficulty, even as he was just plagued in his mind because of his arrogance and sin before God and knowing that he was responsible for 70,000 people who had done absolutely nothing, he still ends up saying, I will extol the Lord. I'll still talk positively about God. Okay, we're in Psalm 30. Turn there. Which does begin, I will extol Thee, O Lord, for thou hast lifted me up. The same God who took him down is the same God who lifted him back up. And David could look back over his life and say, yeah, God punished me. God punished David several times in his life. And yet David could say, it's that same sovereign God who didn't leave me in that state, didn't allow me to be completely destroyed. It is God who lifted me back up. Okay, quick question. Has anybody in this room, this should be easy, anybody in this room ever been sick? Yep. Yeah, that'd pretty much be everybody. Did any of you get well? Yep. Okay, is God sovereign over the sickness? Yes. Yeah. So when you got sick, did God know it? Yeah. Was it God who lifted you up? He did. He did. Same thing. You have to remember through the difficulties and trials of this life that those difficulties and trials are being brought to you by a gracious God who is doing what is best for you and what brings him the greatest glory. And in his sovereignty, even in the difficult times, he is still to be worshipped. He's still to be extolled. You're still to talk good about him. To extol something is to think very highly of it, to hold it in high esteem and then say so. 
to speak well about such things. So David says, the way I speak about God, I am going to extol him as high and mighty. I will extol thee, O Yahweh, for thou hast lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. Okay, so after 70,000 people fighting men are destroyed in Israel, seems like that would have been a great time for Israel's enemies in the midst of all that confusion to come down on Israel. Didn't happen. God protected them. Sovereign God made sure that that was not the moment that the enemies came in. And David realizes at that moment that he could have had his enemies talking about how David, the mighty king, had fallen and 70,000 of his men had fallen and how they'd been able to come in and take Israel. There was an opportunity here to mock David and mock the God of Israel, and yet God did not let that happen. And so part of David's rejoicing is over the fact that his enemies were not able to rejoice over him. Verse 2, O Lord my God, I cried to thee for help, and you did heal me. That word heal, by the way, sometimes we think of it as healing from sickness. But if you think about how often God said that he was going to put sickness and disease and bruise their whole body, speaking to Israel, how their wound was incurable. And then we read in Isaiah that by his stripes, by the stripes of Christ, that we are healed. That healing, I have pointed out several different times, That healing is not necessarily physical healing, like just because you believe in Jesus, you're never going to get sick. It was the healing of the nation of Israel within context because God had struck them. God had made them sick from head to toe, and then God healed them and restored them. David says here the same thing happened to him. I think sometimes we don't give ample thought and credit to how mentally and emotionally devastated David was by what happened. 70,000 people lost their lives because of his arrogance. And he would have just sat in that depression had it not been for God picking him up, lifting him up, putting him back in his right mind, setting him on his throne again, healing him. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you did heal me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from Sheol. That's David's way of saying, I would have died otherwise. I would have either committed suicide or my enemies would have killed me. I was done for. And O Lord, you brought up my soul from the grave. And thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down into the pit. And then verse 4, sing praise to the Lord, you his saints, you his godly ones, you who follow after the way of God. Make sure that you not only are thankful to God and not only recognize the sovereignty of God, but sing to him, which is why this psalm is called a song of dedication for the temple. It is ultimately a song, so David would say, sing. It has been pointed out to me that when I lead songs, um, I beat people into submission, apparently, because you've heard me. I yell at people. 
in the middle of songs, I yell, sing! Because I want people to just sing to God, full-throated, make a joyful noise. Sing to God! David says the same thing here. That's the instruction. You, his saints, you who believe in God and follow after him, sing praise to Yahweh, you, his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Which, by the way, gives us again a little bit of insight to what singing to the Lord ought to be. Singing to the Lord these days in church too often has become a performance. I know I mentioned that recently, and I know I'm kind of harping on it. But you know that I listen to sermons on a daily basis. So I see church services, especially now because everybody is online since the COVID days. So I'm able to go peek in on a lot of different song services for a lot of different churches. And the amount of celebrity performance that's going on in church is disturbing. It's hard to watch. Instead, what we're supposed to be doing is singing praises with our focus being on the Lord. Our focus is on God. And then we are to give thanks in the way that we sacrifice by singing to him, by making melody to him, by corporately as a group singing praises to him we give thanks to his holy name. For his anger, this is good to know. Here's a little bit of the character of God, an attribute of God that you can hold on to. For his anger is for a moment. But his favor, his grace, his loving kindness is for a lifetime. So sometimes God is going to correct you. Sometimes he's going to instruct you. Certainly that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on and says, we all used to have fathers who used to chasten us, and it was never pleasant. But he said the end result of the chastening of God is that it does bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Okay, if God's purpose in chastening you is to bring about that peaceable fruit of righteousness, well, then his anger was temporary. And then he's going to create the result that he desired in the first place. And his loving kindness, which brought that about, lasts for your whole life and lasts out into eternity. And so if you remember that, you can get through the times of difficulty and chastening without feeling like God has abandoned you. You can remember that it is, like I said earlier, it is God who is doing the crushing. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. I have attended a handful of funerals for preacher friends of mine, and, and that verse always comes up. When we lose somebody, weeping lasts for a night. There's a time for weeping. But eventually there's going to be a morning. Uh, that great getting up morning, eventually there's going to be morning. Eventually we're going to be with Christ. Eventually we're all going to be gathered together around the throne of God. 
So not only is David talking circumstantially here and saying, yes, there's difficulties in life, and they last for a period of time, the same way that you may weep through the night. But in the morning, the sun comes up, you feel refreshed, you get up, you go again. I think there is also that sort of eschatological view in David's mind here that, yeah, difficulties and weeping and sadness happen during this lifetime, but there is a shout of joy coming. And if you remember that the shout of joy is coming, it'll help you endure the difficult night. Now, look at this admission from David. Now, as for me, when everything was going great, rainbow over my shoulder, kumbaya, bluebird of happiness, he describes it as when I was in my prosperity, When everything was going great for me, says David, I said to myself, I will never be moved. Hear the self-confidence. Hear the bragging. Hear the ego. When everything was going good for me, when I was being prosperous, when I was the rich and the mighty king, I said to me, I'll never be moved. And I think that's the kind of arrogance that David is admitting to here that caused him to say, go number the people. Even though Joab said, no, no, don't do that. He said, yes, do it. He insisted. Because when everything's going great, we're more likely to think of ourselves as self-made people and that we don't need God. We don't need any help. We'll take care of it. And David admits that here. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I'll never be moved. And then David admits that God taught him better. Oh, Lord, by your grace, by your favor, thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. The reason that David was on his throne, the reason he was ruling Israel, the reason that his might was intact was because it was God who was doing it. And as soon as David forgot that, God reminded him in a way that only God can remind you of things. Killing 70,000 people. I mean, that's a big reminder. And it really made David feel guilty. And he realized that it was his own pride that caused him to go and do that thing that he was even warned by Joab. This is not a good idea. And yet in his prosperity, he was like, I'll do what I want to do. The people on the internet could not see that arm movement. But I will never be moved. And David realizes, oh, Yahweh, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. And you did hide your face. And I was dismayed. So, God, I need you. When you turned away from me, when you started killing people, when you brought down the pestilence, I was absolutely dismayed. I was heartbroken. When you hide your face, I was dismayed. To thee, O Yahweh, I called. And to the Lord, I made my supplication. That's when he built the altar. That's when he took the oxen. That's when he brought the sacrifice to God and he cried out to God. His argument then in verse 9 is, what profit is there in my dying? What profit is there in my blood if I go down into the pit? Will the dust praise you? 
Will it declare your faithfulness? David, after what he's been through, in trusting God and saying, don't let me fall into the hands of men, but I trust God because he is merciful. God ultimately was merciful. And just before he destroyed Jerusalem, God stopped the hand of the angel. And so David could say that he will declare the faithfulness of God who is faithful to his people. Verse 10. Hear, listen, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Yahweh, be thou my helper. Thou hast turned for me my mourning, my sadness, my depression. You've turned that into dancing. One of the last things people who are deeply depressed do is get up and dance. You don't find a lot of real depressive dancing. I'm not even sure what that would look like. If anybody would like to demonstrate really depressed dancing, Jeff almost tried to. He, he just stood still like really depressed dancing. And so what David is obviously saying here is, I was so crestfallen. I was so depressed. I was emotionally so overwrought. And yet it was you in your grace that came and helped me because you are my helper. And you turned for me that sadness and that mourning into dancing. And you loosed my sackcloth. Sackcloth is a sign of repentance and mourning before God. And here David says, you took that sackcloth off me. And instead you gave me new clothing. You girded me with gladness. Verse 12. So that my soul may sing. There it is again. In our gladness about God, in our recognition of who God is, in our knowledge of the grace of God, we are told repeatedly in this psalm that we need to sing praise to God. Anybody found yourself, with the exception of Luann, because I assume that this just naturally happens with Luann, but do you ever find yourself just instantaneously singing to God? Just there's a, a hymn in your head. You can't get it out. And you're just singing to God. You're just happy in God. You recognize and you are thankful for the things of God at that moment in your life. The wolf is away from the door and you're having something to eat. Or, or you look around your surroundings and you realize how very, very blessed you are. And you can't help yourself but extol God. And oftentimes when Christians extol the values and the qualities of God, it comes out in song. Christians are meant to be singing people. Back here, David says, the saints of God are singing people. So my soul will sing praise to you and it will not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So the contrast between the backstory and the psalm is really terrible things took place. And the anger of God was poured out on Israel and thousands of people died. And it was David's fault because of his arrogance, because of his pride. And David knew that. And it caused him to be depressed. It caused him to mourn. It caused him to be sad. So then where did he find his health again? Where did he find restitution? 
Where do you find the ability to get up, walk forward, walk through another day? Where did he find it? He didn't find it within himself. This is another demonstration of what I've said so often lately. The cure for you can't be you. You are your problem. So David, in his depressed state, and rightfully depressed, it's his fault. He's the king, and he's responsible for killing 70,000 innocent people. It's his fault, and he knows it. So he's not going to one day just stand up and party. He's going to repent before God for all he's worth, and he's going to sacrifice before God, and then God restores his soul, brings him back to health, restores him to his throne, establishes him yet again on his throne. And so David can do nothing less than to say, sing to God, praise God. Because if God ever left any of us to ourselves, we'd have not only nothing to live for, but we'd never be able to find the source of true joy. I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you ever bought something that once you got at home, you instantly had buyer's regret? (laughs) Did you really just look straight at April? Did that just happen? And then she instantly smiled and hit you. Something happened in the Gingrich household. (laughs) Yeah, just immediately. Okay, why does that happen? The things that we think, the physical things of this life, the things we think are going to bring us joy are disappointing ultimately. The things that we think are so precious are all going to burn. So where is real joy? You have to know the joy of the Lord because that is lasting joy. That is everlasting joy. That is joy that will get you through this life. That is joy that will bring you comfort during the tough times, during the bad times. And there is nothing in this world that you can even compare to the knowledge of the praise and the worship of a God who will always be gracious to you and restore you and bring you back to health, who will ultimately let you live in his eternal temple, who will ultimately let you be in his presence around his throne where there is joy everlasting This world, the people of this world, the stuff of this world can't possibly get you the reassurance and the peace and the emotional health that comes with the knowledge of Yahweh. It was true in David's time. It was true in Jesus' time. It's true right now. So I would say again, don't run to the world expecting the world to satisfy you, especially if what you buy is whatever the Gingriches just bought. Because um, <laughs> this world ultimately can't satisfy you. This world and its pleasures are passing. Instead, like David, you have to realize that your true comfort, your true joy, everlastingly, comes from God and him alone. Amen? Amen. Pretty good psalm once you know the backstory, huh? Yes. I think there may be even more to that backstory. Just from recent reading in the latter part of First Chronicles, at the end of David's life, he gives instruction to Solomon about how the temple's supposed to be built. He's not right. allowed to build it, but boy did he plan it. Yeah. 
down to the dimensions of the rooms and the furniture and the numbers of articles to be used, etc. And if he did that, being a warrior, a king, and a songwriter, you have to believe he had to prepare songs. Yeah, as part of the dedication. As part of that dedication. Oh, yeah. This may not be the only one. It's the only one that we're told about. Yeah. And by the way, you'll be happy to know the Apologetic Study Bible agrees with your backstory, saying that it's clear that this psalm refers to the events from First Chronicle when David numbered the people. Well, that's kind of why I reopened my Bible, because I was going to mention that in the prescript to this psalm, where it says a psalm, a song of dedication of the house, the words a psalm were added by the translator. You can see they're in italics. So what it really says in the Hebrew was a song at the dedication of the house of David. And so since there's no punctuation in the original, there are commentaries out there and people who argue that this whole psalm was about the dedication of his house of cedar, which actually, with the details of the psalm, make no sense at all. And so that's part of why I concluded that this has to be the only appropriate backstory and I'm so glad to know that other commentators have agreed with me. And I will say that they are right. So, yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, ESV has a footnote that is on verse 5. And uh, it's, it's in the middle of it. It says, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor, and the footnote reads, and his favor is life. Yeah. Not just for a lifetime, but it is very favorable. It is life. Yeah. The favor and the grace of God is the only reason there is life. Good addition. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.